Hello, we're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and this is Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast, where today we'll be studying Exodus chapters 7 through 13, some material that you'll find very familiar to you. And this is, of course, the intriguing story of the children of Israel starting to leave Egypt and all that they went through. And we have a special guest with us today. Yes, we're so honored to have Daniel Peterson join us. And if I were to list everything he did, it would take most of the podcast. So these are only a few highlights. He's the newly retired, who never stops working, professor um, <laughs> from BYU of Islamic Studies and Arabic. He founded the Middle Eastern Texts Initiative. He's studied and taught in Jerusalem and Cairo, and he is the editor-in-chief of Interpreter. And aren't you the founder as well, Dan? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a publication that we really count on. He also blogs every day at Sick at Non, and uh, he has recently also gotten into film. And so he and his wife have produced the wonderful feature length film on Witnesses, Witnesses of the Book of Mormon, and this year has just issued a companion documentary called Undaunted. We'll put the links where you can find them so you can see other of the great work that Dan Peterson has done. Thank you for being with us today, Dan. We're so excited to talk about these chapters together. And as we open in uh, chapters 7 through 13, we are looking at something that's very familiar to all of us because most everyone who's listening has seen Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments. Our family used to watch it every year, and there is just something about that movie that I don't know whether it's very accurate. It seems accurate to me in some ways, right. uh, but it certainly gives us a visual representation of this time period. But first of all, I just want to have you explain one thing as we begin coming to know Pharaoh a little bit. Uh, it sounds like the Lord is hardening his heart every time when he goes to receive a counsel from Moses to let my people go, and, and uh, the Lord hardens his heart again. But there's something in the text that's not right there. Yeah, the Joseph Smith translation says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It, don't blame it on God. Uh, it wouldn't be very fair of God to set Pharaoh up like that, to put him in a position where he can't do other than he does, and then punish him for it. Um, so it's Pharaoh who's hardening his heart. I think, uh, you know, I don't know if the original text was wrong and that Joseph is, is correcting it, or if Joseph is restoring the original text, but, uh, but it's a very different view, that it's Pharaoh who hardens his heart, not God hardening his heart. And I think that's important to know, that people are responsible for their sins. I think it's interesting that we are about to see ten plagues unleashed on Egypt. And I wonder if this big show of power was necessary both for the Egyptians and the Israelites. Could there have been an easier way to do it? But no, I mean, this absolutely decimates Egypt in the long run. And so you wonder about this show of power. Is this to convince both Israel and Egypt? I think it is, and it becomes a pivotal uh, moment in the history of Israel. Uh, Jews today still, even if they're not believers, they still will very commonly observe the Passover Seder. 
uh, have the ritual Passover meal and so on to remember the days when their ancestors were slaves in Egypt. This is the formative event, and quite often even subsequent prophets will hearken back to do you not remember the great works that, that God did for our fathers? And the great work, the greatest of all those works, is delivering them with a mighty hand out of Egypt. So it becomes the formative event, really, for the people of Israel. Before that, it had been a, a few ragtag families, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now it's a substantial people, uh, and this is the thing that makes them what they are. So I, I think I think that's really important. It also certainly affects the Egyptians. Um, the Pharaoh finally not only uh, allows them to leave, but basically says, get out now. You know, as some of them say to them, we be all dead men. You know, if, if you don't get out, we're all going to die. So we want you to go. We're not just, we're not reluctant. We want you out. The sooner you go, the better off we'll be. I think it's interesting when... Aaron cast down Moses' staff first in this uh, first miracle or first sign to the Pharaoh, and his staff becomes a serpent, but the sorcerers of Egypt can do the same thing. What's going on here? That's an interesting question. I don't think we really know. I mean, it's possible that they're doing it as... uh you know, some sort of imitation, I mean, a magic trick, the way modern-day magicians can do things that just you, you can't imagine how they did it, you know. But you know it's not real. He's not really flying. He looks like he's flying. He, he didn't create a rabbit in the hat, um, but you don't know how he did it. Uh, it may be that it's sleight of hand in some way, uh, or it may be demonic power. Um, you know, the, the term for sorcerer or, or magicians, as it's often translated, uh, some people want to translate it with a more sort of bland term, religious experts. I think that loses a lot, but it, it does point to something, which is these weren't magicians in our sense. These were Egyptian priests. These were the learned religious class of Egypt, and presumably there are things they can do, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of it was... Uh, putting on a magic show for the masses, or maybe even for Pharaoh himself, you know, to, uh, uh, to dazzle him with divine power where it's really something they've put together. Yeah, maybe sincerely, maybe not, but, you know, to sort of fool the masses into thinking, wow, God is on our side, or God's really in that temple, or God's really in this box that we're carrying through the, as a, on a parade through the village. Um, you know, we just don't know. But yeah, they do. And in some cases, I ask myself, but why would they want to duplicate the miracle? Like, he can turn water to blood. Well, we can too, and they do it. And I think, why do you want the water to be blood? Why do you want frogs all over your countryside? Well, we can create frogs too. Um, it's a little puzzling. But eventually, they reach a point, you may notice this, where they say, uh, we can't do that. And then eventually the signs are affecting them. The magicians can hardly stand up because of the blains they're suffering from. And, and then eventually they're begging Pharaoh, let them, let them go. We can't do this. Even Pharaoh says, okay, this is the finger of God. My magicians can't do that. Uh, you know, the, the reason they're doing it, I think, is to tell him, oh, you know, don't be overawed by Moses. He can do it, so can we. At least it looks like we're doing the same thing. I think it's job security. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When when uh, when Pharaoh discovers that you you may be a magician or a religious expert or whatever you want to call them, and you can't do these things, and Moses can, you're out of a job. Maybe I'll hire Moses. Well, Moses is up against 
a real challenge because Pharaoh believes he is God. And so when Moses comes in representing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, basically this God who will protect and deliver the Hebrews, this is a direct affront to Pharaoh's identity. Yeah. And then, in addition, it seems like each of those plagues is also a direct affront to an Egyptian, one Egyptian deity or another. Yeah, the, you know, turning the Nile to blood. The Nile is the most important thing about Egypt. Um, the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, who visited Egypt, famously said that Egypt was the gift of the Nile. And if you look at a map of Egypt, it looks pretty big, but if you look at a map of the populated parts of Egypt, it's essentially the Nile Valley with a little leaf off to the to the west in the, the oasis of the Fayum, and then a little bit along the Mediterranean coast. But it's basically the Nile Valley. And, uh, and so to affect the Nile, which was regarded as a god in Egypt, they actually had a god of the river. Um, and to be able to affect that, you're affecting everything in Egypt. Uh, even today, uh, the Egyptians have let it be known to people who control the sources of the Nile that if they ever try to interfere with Egypt's water supply, that will be an act of war uh, because Egypt is wholly dependent upon the Nile. And to go right for the jugular vein, in a way, in, in the first plague and make the water of the Nile undrinkable and unusable, this is shock and awe. Um, it, it really has an impact, but still not enough because Pharaoh is so arrogant. You know, we've talked before about the, the question of who the, uh, who the Pharaoh might be, and the fact is we don't know. Some have suggested that the Pharaoh who raised Moses is Seti I, and that then his, uh, the, his successor is Ramses II. I don't know if that's true, but anyone who's been to Egypt or read a little bit about Egypt would know that that really fits Ramses to a T. If, if there was ever a monumental, I mean literally monumental, egomaniac in, in world history, it's Ramses II, who has huge statues of himself all over the country and even stole other pharaoh's statues and put his name on them. You know, and he, he has statues of himself with, with his wife, for example, and she barely comes up to his knees because who's really important in this relationship? I am. I can imagine a person like that, you know, telling Moses, Okay, so you're representing the God of these, these Hebrew shepherds, Abraham, you say, and Isaac and Jacob. Who are they? I am the son of the God Ra, the, the emperor of the skies. This is nothing. I care nothing for you. Well, yes, and when you talk about um, the sun as being a god, and you get this darkness that is tangible, so tangible you can feel it for three days, yeah. there's another direct assault upon their theology. Yeah, we, this miracle blacks out the sun god Ra. So he may still be there. They don't know. They can't tell. But his light isn't reaching Egypt. And that's, that's a direct challenge. And Pharaoh is his son, supposedly. Ramesses, Ramesses means child of Ra, the sun god. If that's the one, then, uh, then it's a direct affront to him and to his father, the divine Ra. I have to say on a personal note on this, <laughs> every time we go to the, the Egyptian museum in Cairo, uh, we always pay that little extra amount to go into the room that's full of the uh, pharaohs who are still there and embalmed and look pretty good, actually. You know, they have still <laughs> They don't they look that hair. good. <laughs> so, I mean, for a dead person of, you know, 
3,000 plus years ago, there, depending on which one, you know, but uh, I just have to say, we always look at Ramses II, and yes, we don't know if that was the person, but he, it certainly points to him in the record, but uh, we always look at him and just almost talk to him and say, you know, things didn't work out well for you. <laughs> here you are being seen by hundreds of thousands of people all the time in your state, and uh, you really don't look that powerful. You know. Yeah, I've, I've thought similar things when I've gone into that room, and I thought, here you were, the most important person in the world as far as you knew, and maybe truly the most important single human in the world. And now, 3,000, 3,500 years later, are all these peasants walking by and gawking at you. <laughs> and there's no splendor, there's nothing, you know. That's what human greatness comes down to. A little humility might have been in order. It's so true. Now, all of these plagues are happening, and they're affecting the Egyptians, but they're not affecting the Hebrews. And so uh, tell us about that and how that must have felt to the Egyptians and how it must have felt to the Hebrews. Yeah, uh, the Hebrews, uh, we know that at least some of them, a sizable chunk of them, are, are concentrated probably up in the, the Nile Delta, that is the region in the north of Egypt where the Nile River fans out uh, and then enters the Mediterranean Sea. And the treasure cities of Pythom and Ramses that, uh, that it says the Israelites are building are up there we're pretty certain on the eastern side of the delta, over kind of on the side toward Israel, um, and uh, and so that area seems to be spared from a from well all of these plagues really that uh, that that the Lord passes by them. Uh, other parts of Egypt are affected, but not that part of the delta, which is really interesting, and I think would would certainly make a statement. I mean, the King James Bible puts it this way, thus did the Lord God show that he made a difference between the Egyptians and the, and the Hebrews. So he makes a difference. The Egyptians are suffering and the Israelites are doing just fine. Although they must have been intermixed with the Egyptians a little bit, because later on we learn that they borrow things from their Egyptian neighbors and then make off with them. Kind of a, a funny part of the story. But, uh, but they have Egyptian neighbors. They're not totally separate. Um, and then two later, in the, in the last of the plagues, they still have to mark their dwellings uh, so that the angel of death will pass them by. So it's not just a matter of a blanket geographical exemption. What I think is so interesting is that as these plagues get worse and worse, and they are, this, this hail that becomes fire when it lands, you know, lies, uh, blains and boils on your skin. I mean, this is really, really bad, leading up to the really, really bad one. But as, as they do, I'm so interested to see Pharaoh's response because he begins to say, okay, I will let you go. And then he changes his mind. As soon as, yeah. as, soon as the, the plague is taken away, he immediately backpedals. And um, in some ways... That reminds me of us, uh, all of us as human beings. You know, uh, the old story about the man who fell over the cliff and and uh, he was praying with all his heart that he would be saved and his coat caught on a branch and then he said, never mind, Lord, I don't need you after all. <laughs> so it seems like a really common thing. But it again, Pharaoh can't even keep his word. He is so used to not having to make any concessions to anyone of any kind that no matter what he says, it's it's really not trustworthy until, well, I was going to say until the very end, but even then it's not trustworthy. Right. 
Right. No, it's it's really you know, and we do the same thing in similar ways, maybe equal and opposite ways. We, when we're in real trouble, we pray for divine help, and then when things get better, we sort of slip back into complacency and don't pray as much or as fervently. And but boy, when when there's a real difficulty, oh, then we're on our knees, urgently pleading with the Lord. Um, and you know, but it passes, and and Pharaoh may think, well, okay, that's the worst of it. Well, we survived. It's probably all he's going to do. And then comes another one. Uh, and eventually he realized this isn't going to end until they're gone. Even then, though, he doesn't, he doesn't really want to let them go. It's a great blow to have your slaves successfully rebel. I mean, we know, take a later slave revolt, the famous slave revolt of Spartacus against the Romans. And what they did to the, uh, to the slaves, they crucified them along the Appian Way. Um, and uh, made a made a spectacle of them because it just wouldn't do to have slaves successfully rebelling. One group does that; others may get ideas, but this time they got away. You know, our favorite line back to Cecil B. DeMille, the non-scriptural text, but back to his movie. Our favorite line from that movie, by far, is when it's finally acknowledged: Moses, God, is God. <laughs> And there is something about that, and uh, I, I guess that leads us to a question of what is it in us as uh, children of our Heavenly Father that we would ever resist Him? I don't understand why we would ever resist God. Yeah, it's, it's funny because uh, most of us recognize that if we live the rules, if we live the commandments, our lives actually go better. There are all sorts of studies this is, this is actual science that indicate that people with religious affiliations who live by certain standards do better in life. Um, we, we know that people who donate to charity and serve are happier. We all know it, but we don't really believe it. And we, we will still say, well, yeah, 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 I grant the idea that, you know, that being faithful to God and serving and giving and so on would make me happier. But what I really want is a bigger boat. What I really want is a bigger house. I got to get a job that pays me more. Not, you know, understanding with our minds, but not with our hearts. That beyond a certain point, those things don't actually tend to make you happier. You, you know, you have to have a roof over your head and and food and clothing. But beyond that, devoting your life to a false god of uh, prosperity or power or whatever it is you're going after just isn't going to make you happier. But we, we just don't really believe these things. Um, so, you know, President Kimball gave a talk once on the false gods we worship, and they're innumerable false gods that we worship. You know, I think a good way of describing or defining what a person's god is, what is it that really is most important to him or to her? And some of us, if we analyze ourselves, we'll find that at least at some points in our lives, it hasn't necessarily been the God of Israel. It's been something else that we want or that we really care about? It seems interesting to me because one of the central questions in the Old Testament with the population there is, who is God? Because everyone's yeah. claiming, we have a God, our God is God, this God is God. And so here in this story, God is making it very clear who is God. 
Yeah. And I, I think that's a really interesting thing that becomes a part of the heritage of Israel and maybe a necessary part of Israel as they will be constantly tempted and challenged and fall to the idea that there is another another God. Yeah, it's it's amazing to watch the history of even Exodus alone, uh, where the Israelites are constantly falling. Um, and, and this is true throughout much of Israelite history, until maybe up to the time of the Babylonian captivity. They're always uh, making little idols for themselves or, you know, going after some other god of the Canaanites or something like that. Um, they just haven't managed to to firmly fix their identity yet. It takes a long time. Um, so, yeah, we... But again, I would say, well, most of us, for most of us today, idolatry isn't really an option. I'm not likely to put a little metal statue in the corner of my room and bow down to it much. That's not in the air today. But I, I might have another kind of idol, you know, and I have to be constantly watching, do I have any idols? Do I need to eliminate them from my life? I, I really like the this uh, definition of Scripture, or the Bible, I think, uh, and it's the Bible. It's Mark Twain, or probably Ambrose Bierce, who defined the Bible as a book of Scripture admirably suited to the needs of my neighbor. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I think, I think we need to be careful when we read this and say, oh, look, stupid idolaters, how could they have been such fools? That's not the important lesson to draw from this. We should be asking ourselves the question at the Last Supper, Lord, is it I? Am I doing this? In what way might I be doing this? Can I learn from this? It's... It, the Lord didn't give us these scriptures so we could laugh at the stupid Israelites uh, that are being led by Moses or at dumb Laman and Lemuel. He, he's giving it to us so we can learn not to be like them. That's so true. I was just going to lead us into Peshach or the Passover because this becomes a, a critical moment in the children of Israel leaving Egypt, and it's in their DNA to this day. Peshach is just so important to them. Passover is so important yeah. to them. And let's kind of go through this as far as the symbolism of the atonement goes and just what were they what were they commanded to do and and then you know how did this become the birth of the the nation of Israel? You know, I think I think the Christian symbolism of the Passover is almost embarrassingly obvious. Uh, so much so that I've led several Passover seders, and I've attended a number of others, and I wouldn't be upset if Latter-day Saints, not as a commandment, but if, if some of us did this from time to time. I think it's a really good teaching moment for children to teach them the symbolism of the Passover, as we understand it, not as Jews today understand it, but as Latter-day Saints would apply it. So some of the symbolism is pretty pretty obvious. You have the curse upon the Egyptians that the firstborn uh, male child is going to die in their families, not only in their families, but you know, from Pharaoh on down, but among their livestock and so on. And so the Israelites um, are commanded to observe the Passover. And what do they do? They sacrifice a lamb, but it has to be the firstborn male lamb unblemished. Now, if that isn't an obvious reference to Christ, it, I don't know what would be. Christ was the firstborn. He was unblemished and so on, uh, the, the unblemishedness is a really important part of the atonement, that he is literally without sin. He's an unblemished lamb, and so he is sacrificed. But then 
what would that mean to us if we didn't uh, apply the blood in a way? And it's not a phrase that we use very often, but it it's really relevant. Uh, in the Passover, the initial Passover, what they're supposed to do is take the blood and spread it on the doorposts and the lintel, the, the crossbeam of their doors, to their little individual mud dwellings, which probably had you know, a, a wooden outlined uh, doorway or something like that. Uh, and this is to tell the angel of death or the Lord himself to pass by that or to pass over that house and spare the inhabitants, including the firstborn who's there. Well, the idea of, of uh, applying the blood of Christ to ourselves is centrally important to accepting the atonement. It's, it's not enough that Christ has atoned for our sins. We have to accept that atonement. If we don't, it's as if it didn't happen for us, so that's putting the putting the blood on the on the door and lintel of your uh, of your house, telling the Lord, yes, I'm I accept the atonement, I accept the sacrifice of your unblemished Son. Then there are other aspects of the thing that that have to do with their um, with their rapid removal from Egypt. You have uh, the unleavened bread. the The idea is that they. Uh, they don't have time for bread to rise, right? That their their flight is going to be in haste. Uh, they're supposed to eat it in the old days with their walking staff and their shoes on, uh, and uh, and this is to indicate they're ready to go to bolt at at a moment's notice. Um, there are things like um, you know dipping, uh, eating the bitter herbs to remind themselves what they came from, the the bitterness of of captivity. But all of this fits, I think, a Christian context really well. We are captive to sin until the atonement frees us from it. We would be the slaves of of the devil if the atonement didn't free us from captivity. Um, and it's it's by that shed blood of Christ and the atonement that He makes for our sins that we are free because He's an unblemished Lamb. I, mean, I think I think the symbolism should be pretty obvious to a Latter Day Saint. Uh, something to reflect on, and in a way too, the uh, the sacrament that we do still today is a very abbreviated form, a descendant of the Passover, uh, with with the wine originally, or the water now, and the bread representing the, the body of Christ. The initial um, sacrament service was a Passover meal, the Last Supper. So this has enormous ramifications, and not just for Jews, but for Latter-day Saints as well. I've always thought it was interesting and ironic that when Jesus is put on trial by the Sanhedrin, and then they take him next to, to, the, to the Romans, to be tried, that they won't enter Pilate's house because they're afraid that it will have leaven in it. So they are right. they are following the Passover law, but they don't recognize the point of the Passover, which is right with them. They're taking Christ to be judged and ultimately crucified. What an ironic moment that is that they have kept Passover all these centuries, and yet they don't recognize Christ when he is right there with them. Well, and in that particular case, too, I mean, uh, Jews are sometimes criticized for legalism. Uh, the rabbis or the Pharisees certainly were, and it's sometimes justified, sometimes maybe not so much, but, but the idea that you go in to deliver an innocent man to a brutal, violent death, but you're worried about whether there's leaven in the house. Uh, this is getting moral priorities just a little bit skewed, I think. I'm taken by the fact that in our dispensation, 
the Lord gives as the last promise in the word of wisdom, and I, the Lord, give unto them a promise that the destroying angel shall pass by them as the children of Israel and not slay them. You know, tied to yes. the word of wisdom. So here's this health code that we're given, and we're re reminded of our Hebrew roots that we're right. that we're to right. look back to to this uh, time when the angel of death passed over them. Again, that's in, right in our time. Yeah, so you know this Passover echoes. In fact, you know it's kind of interesting that uh, that the early founding fathers saw themselves saw the founding of America as being in some way connected with this. So much so that uh, Benjamin Franklin proposed as the first seal of the United States. It wasn't accepted. Uh, an image with the uh, the pillar of fire going ahead of the children of Israel. Um, because he thought that's what the people of the United States were, people who'd gone out of captivity in Europe to come to freedom in the promised land. And so, you know, this, this image, it's been used constantly. I mean, uh, black spirituals uh, in the South were always singing about Moses going down Egypt way and saying, let my people go. I mean, the image of, of liberation, salvation, earthly liberation and salvation is so rich in this story that it's been used in multiple cultures. Um, and for understandable reasons. And I think it's so interesting in that last meeting with Pharaoh that he basically says, as we mentioned earlier, I don't want to see your face again, Moses. I mean, Moses has been nothing but trouble to Pharaoh. And Moses says, you won't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, think of it, too. There's a human dimension to this that I think is brought out in uh, Cecil B. DeMille's movie and so on, but uh, uh, that these are people who are probably raised together. They'd known each other. Moses had grown up at court. Pharaoh wasn't a stranger to him. So the rift is utter and absolute. I don't ever want to see your face again. Moses says, don't worry, you won't. Um, you know, it's, it's a terrible personal tragedy in its small way, among all the other things that are going on. I'm fascinated that the children of Israel were directed to go to their neighbor's and to ask for their gold and their silver and their precious things. And, and the Lord softened the hearts of their neighbors and they gave them away. And then they basically are spoiling Egypt. And that's just a fascinating way for this group of what we've been considering for some generations, slaves to the Egyptians. They're all spoiling Egypt now as they leave. And you're right, from the beginning of this uh, podcast, you know, well, I guess it might have been last week when we talked about the fact that the the Egyptians are not going to put this on the records in their temples and all over their their murals because this was pretty embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, this is a major defeat for an arrogant pharaoh and for a people who didn't like the idea of slaves successfully getting away with a revolt. Um, so, and, and it's kind of funny here to see the Lord telling his people to essentially steal from the Egyptians. But I think that the idea would be, well, they've exploited you for the better part of half a millennium. Um, and so you're going to go out as slaves with nothing. You should take something from them because, because a lot of that is the product of your labor. Their economy is strong because you were working for it. And so it's only fair that you take a little bit of that. Uh, so they do. It's, a, it's an interesting passage. So... It's so interesting as they leave, 
the Lord will be obviously and visibly with them because there'll be a, a pillar by night and a shadow by day as we sing in this song, How Firm a Foundation. But that is really obvious. And I think it's interesting that a shadow by day as you're crossing the Sinai mm -hmm. Desert would be so important. Scott and I have spent a lot of time even right. camping in the desert. And when that sun comes up, it's like an enemy. It's so hot. It's so terribly, terribly hot. And you can hardly you can hardly bear the heat. So if you have sort of a shadow by day, that's the indication that you are sort of being watched over. And of course, the pillar by night is the same thing, protecting you from all the things that could be in a wilderness. So I love it because, again, it seems like part of the covenant promise. Uh, this The same kind of thing that the Lord said to Jacob, you know, I will go with you. I will be with you on this journey. And, and Jacob says, then you will be my God. And again, this is seen now with these posterity. It, they have this very clear indication that God is with them. And and that is one of the divine names. One of the names that's given to Jesus in Scripture is Emmanuel or Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us, uh, and that's one of the one of the great promises made to the covenant people is that God is with you. You may not always see Him as clearly as a pillar of fire or, or of smoke, but but He is with you, and uh, and so you can depend on Him. And the, He's He's trying to teach that to the Israelites again. In in the future of Israel, He won't be there so obviously, but if they remember this story, they'll know that He is with them. That there was a time when He was obviously with them, you know, in a visible, unmistakable way. Uh, and and that will reinforce the lesson that then they'll remember forever. And you know we don't have a pillar by night and a shadow by day, but he is with us just the same. And sometimes it seems like it would be a lot easier if we could see this visible thing that reminds us that God is with us. It there is a lot more required when you have to rely on your memory and your experiences and the good feelings that you have when you do certain things, but. The Lord is with us just as clearly as he was with those covenant children as they crossed that great wilderness to the promised land. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think, one of the most important lessons to learn in the gospel is that, that God is with us and that in the end everything will be okay. It may not be in the short term sometimes, but in the long term everything will be okay. Um, I've always loved to... Uh, statement from a, a, a British mystic, uh, despite the name, a woman, Julian of Norwich, who just ends uh, a lot of her spiritual essays with, uh, and all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Uh, and, and that's the lesson, I think, of the gospel, is that in the end, everything will be all right if you're faithful. All your losses will be made up to you in the resurrection, Joseph Smith said. By the vision of the Almighty, I have seen it. That's an important promise to me, that the Lord is with us. He doesn't forget about us. Even when it seems the worst, he's with us and, and will be. I think that is one of the greatest lessons of this particular week of studying the Old Testament is that God is with us. This is Scott and Maureen Proctor. We've been here with our guest, Dr. Daniel Peterson. We're so grateful for your time with us. Next week, we'll be studying Exodus chapters 14 through 17. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. 
Thanks to Paul Cardall for the music which accompanies this podcast. And as always, we're grateful to Michaela Proctor Hutchins for producing this show. Have a great week and see you next time.